Hey everyone, this is Matt with The Curbsiders, and before we get into the show tonight, I wanted to ask your favor if you would send us a little bit of feedback. A lot of our episodes, we have these great long discussions with our specialists, and at the end, we have these episodes that may be anywhere from 60 to 90 minutes long. I struggle with whether to split these into two episodes or keep them just as one longer episode, so I'd love to know your thoughts on that. For this episode, I decided to go ahead and split our talk with Dr. Popio into two separate episodes, which I think happens nicely. The first part, we talk all about dementia in the elderly. Specifically, we talk about suicide. We talk about uh, how to choose between medications. We talk about how to titrate medications when, when you can start and stop them and some of the adjuvant therapies. On part two, which will come out a bit later, we will be talking about sleep problems in older adults as well as how to treat behavior issues in dementia. Specifically, we talk about benzodiazepines and antipsychotic agents, which I know are controversial, so I think you'll find it very interesting. So without further ado, let's get to our part one with Dr. Popio. Podcast is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only, and the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease or conditions. Furthermore, the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of those and should not be interpreted to reflect official policy or position of any entity, aside from possibly cash back more hospital and affiliate outreach programs. If indeed there are any, in fact, there are none. Pretty much, we are responsible to screw up. You should always do your own homework and let us know when we're ready. Welcome back to the Curbsiders, and uh, I am without my normal co-host tonight. Stuart and Paul have are both actually having late nights in the hospital, and with me tonight is Jordana Kazupski, and we'll just be calling you Jordy for the show. Hey, Jordy, thank you for coming on again. I think that's easier. Thank you for having me. So what? So you got married since the last show. You were on. You were on the show with Dr. John Ryan on pulmonary hypertension, which was a very popular show. Good. And this one, for this one, you uh, you got us a great guest, found us a great guest from New York. Right. He's a, sort of a neighbor of mine, I guess, in a different borough. And yeah, I got married. I started a new job. I'm now a palliative care nurse practitioner. So this episode will be particularly applicable to my population. So I did this a little bit selfishly. Um, That's yeah, okay. This this whole show is a selfish project. We we talk about this all the time. Stuart, Paul, and I. This is a selfish project that helps our practice tremendously. So it really does. I mean, it really forces you to do the research into something that you know that you can benefit from. And so, anyway, I'm. I'm I think. Is this the intro or outro? Yeah, this is the intro. Okay. So <laughs> I, <laughs> that, think, I think it will be a great episode. You know, I'm excited to hear from him. Yeah. And Jordy, you always know it's the intro because we record it last and we're delirious. <laughs> and that's why it's the uh, that's why we record it last. We like to come into the show with a weird energy uh, just so people know what they're getting into. I said this the last time, but it's <laughs> 10 o'clock and this is I'm in bed at 830. So this is just way past my bedtime. Oh, my gosh. I think you're way younger than me too. You shouldn't be in bed that early. All right. Well, uh, normally I ask Paul what we do on this show. So I will just tell the audience if they've made it this far. This is an internal medicine podcast where we curbside an expert to bring you clinical pearls and practice changing knowledge. 
On this episode, we spoke with Dr. Dennis M. Popio. He is an associate professor of psychiatry at New York University School of Medicine. He grew up in upstate New York and attended Union College. He graduated SUNY Stony Brook School of Medicine and completed his psychiatry residency and geriatric psychiatry fellowship at the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. After fellowship, he worked at Mount Sinai for six years, rising to the position of director of the Outpatient Geriatric Psychiatry Clinic and director of medical school education of the Department of Psychiatry. In 2012, he was recruited to NYU to revive the electroconvulsive therapy service at Bellevue Hospital. He now is the director of that service and the unit chief of the medical and geriatric psychiatry unit at Bellevue Hospital. He also directs a course in the medical school and supervises residents and fellows. His research interests include treating depression, educational theory, and LGBT issues in geriatrics. He also makes a crazy good red sauce. On the show tonight, we talk to him all about depression. Uh, We touch a bit on suicide, a lot of ins and outs of the different medications. It's a really wide-ranging discussion, and I think you'll find it really enjoyable, just like we did. Dr. Popio, is it okay if we call you Dennis, just to so I don't have to struggle with the name all night, and also because we call all our guests by their first name? That's fine. Okay. <laughs> I should have mentioned that before we started recording. So... I want to ask if you could just, to start off, give the audience a one-liner that gives them a little bit of flavor about who you are. Sure. Um, my name is Dennis Popio. I am a geriatric psychiatrist working out of New York City, um, and uh, I am uh, both a inpatient psychiatry unit chief as well as a consultation liaison psychiatrist. And your your dog has an Instagram. <laughs> that is true. My do- my dog has an Instagram. It's at Steve the Cardigan Corgi. Um, he is a Cardigan Corgi who is a, a typical dog about town. I'm really I'm really a sh- uh, like this would be so great to have Stuart here right now because he would be like furiously looking up and like sharing pictures over Skype with everybody. <laughs> um, but we'll just pretend that's happening. Uh, and thank you, Jordy, for reminding me about that. Well. Course. Dennis, did you want to tell? So, what like outside of outside of your clinical practice? What do you do for fun? Like my one liner includes my addiction to bad movies and weird eating habits. So, what anything like that for you? Uh, you know, I, I do I do love to cook. Um, I watch a ridiculous amount of television, including really bad television. Um, so, like you know, I, I've never met a. Uh, reality show that I really haven't liked. I, I, I wonder what housewives are like in cities without real housewives shows. Like Tulsa? Like, Non-functional. What are the women like in Tulsa? I don't know. There's no housewife show. Can't tell. I don't know. Not yet. But now now maybe they're, maybe those people are listening. Now they know there's a market for maybe. it. Maybe it's in the works. Maybe Either that or I'm going to get a lot of hate mail from Tulsa. <laughs> Which is okay. Just send it to Curbsiders. <laughs> yeah, please send all your uh, please send all your hate mail for Doctor Popio to the Curbsiders at gmail dot com. Jordy, did you want to ask anything? Um, yeah, I know um, you do a lot of teaching. So, um, what's a good piece of advice that you like to give to new students? Um. So, you know, I think that it is important to so be really open-minded about things. I know that a lot of people come into medical school with an idea of what they want to be. Um, but I do... Ah, there we go. There's Steve. Um, but 
Um, but I think it's important to sort of keep an open mind because you don't know what happened. So, for instance, when I went to medical school, I thought 100% I was going to be a plastic surgeon. Uh, and I spent the first two years of medical school hanging out with all the plastic surgeons. And I realized I, I didn't really want to do that after doing my third year. Um, and I realized that, like, there was something else calling me. So, you know, I graduated and I matched in radiology. And I did a year of internal medicine and a year of radiology. And I realized I hated it. And uh, and I realized I needed to talk to people and not just to snidely point out that they were mistaking, like, the spleen for the liver and that, no, that's not a tumor, that's a gallbladder. Um <laughs> But I actually, you know, I, I realized like, okay, I, I don't, I don't like this, and uh, and I ended up in psychiatry, and I'm really happy about that. So I always tell students keep an open mind, and it's not too late to like make a change and make a decision and make a different decision. That that kind of sounds like the way that I ended up choosing internal medicine, and I, I just sort of was going by feel like. Does this group of people feel like the people that I want to spend lots and lots of time with for a long time? And that that was kind of how I decided to to go into internal medicine eventually. I was like, mm -hmm. yeah, these people are nerdy. They're pretty thoughtful. <laughs> they like physiology. And, you know, that was kind of that was kind of how I found found them to to, to change gears a little bit. Any mm -hmm. book recommendations? It doesn't necessarily have to be a medical related book, just any book that you've recently enjoyed that you would recommend to the audience. I I have to tell you I I'm not a big book reader. I am a huge magazine person. So I am a huge New Yorker reader. I love sort of that long form investigative journalism. Um and they are they're doing such like some really really great and interesting things. Uh so I I spend a lot of time reading um the New Yorker for you know, and I also have spent a lot of time, actually, you know, one of the other things that I do, aside from teaching residents, is I realize we don't spend a lot of time um, in medical school talking about, like, professional development and how to sort of uh, get the career that you want. Like, we, we think in these, like, four-year chunks and five-year chunks, you know, four years you're done with medical school three to five years you're done with the residency, and then all of a sudden you're in a career and no one gives you advice about how to go forward, except for things like find a mentor or, you know, publish or, you know. Um, so, you know, I've, I've been doing a lot of spending a lot of time, like looking up stuff like that. And of course, there's no information about that in medicine. So I'm spending a lot of time reading the Harvard Business Review, um, because there is a ton of stuff about feedback and about dealing with difficult bosses. And, um, you know, I, I just, you know, downloaded a great article about how you can make every meeting count. And I don't know about you, but if you're a hospitalist, you spend hours in mindless meetings. And um, and sometimes you run those mindless meetings. And I, I found that, that some of the tips and tricks have been really helpful. Matt, what was a book that you plugged a very long time ago? And I bought it and I got like halfway through it. It's a yellow book. It's called like... Multipliers? No. It's called, it's about like being present and, oh, um, something work. Hard, oh, deep um, work. Deep work, yeah. Yeah, deep work is by Cal Newport. It's a yeah. fantastic book. He's a, he's some sort of a computer, I want to say he's a computer scientist and he's, he published like crazy during the writing of that book, which was about how to protect your time and make your time count. And so that book was hugely influ influential on me. And I'm reading another one now by a guy named Greg McCone, M-C-K-E-O-W-N or something. And uh, mm -hmm. it's about, it's called Essentialism. And it's 
it's basically he talks about like making difficult choices so that you don't end up on a bunch of committees that you don't like and only yeah. only really saying yes to to things that are like a hell yes like you know that you really want to do so i think this is important yeah i i too uh dennis am obsessed with reading about this kind of stuff and yeah. we talk about it a lot on the podcast I, f- I find that helps keep me kind of thinking about these things yeah definitely i feel like I, I really feel like you get in like you get stuck in a rut like when i first started in my first academic job i've always i've been in academic medicine since um i graduated residency and, and fellowship and yeah, you you sort of get into this habit of saying yes because you know you just you're told oh junior faculty say yes, um, and then all of a sudden you get stuck doing things that like really don't move you forward in the path um, that you need to go into. So yeah, yeah, and I'm assuming it's the same thing with nursing. I mean, there's a million things that um, that like young nurses can do and they get stuck doing and they may not want to do that and. I just think about like the quality assurance stuff that like. Oh yeah, that's a big thing. Doing, but you know, nurse practitioners. I mean, I don't work in an academic institution anymore, which I really miss. But you kind of get very. I've found. I mean, maybe a lot of other people disagree that you get very specialty focused right away. Um, it's hard when you're not working in a teaching hospital. So I don't have that problem. I did more when I was a regular nurse, um, but I think it's something that is probably more toward like the attending status when they get roped into all of those things. Yeah. I wish I was being roped into more committees. <laughs> Unfortunately, I'm kind of, I, I love my specialty, but I don't really branch mm-hmm. out of it. So, so I would say, and if you're looking for, if you're looking to get involved, I mean, whatever your local organization is uh, for me, I'm starting to do things with the American college of physicians, but mm-hmm. there's, there's, I'm sure th- there's the society for hospital medicine and things like that. I'm sure there's com- compatible things with. Yeah, definitely. So, sure. so I think that's a way to get involved. If at your local institution, you find like you're not getting the opportunities you want, but Dennis, we wanted to start off. I think Jordy has a case to kind of get uh, kick things off here, and then we're going to start. The topic tonight is geriatric psychiatry, of course. Okay, so we have KM. She's an 85-year-old female with a history of COPD, CKD, and type 2 diabetes. She comes in for her regular checkup with her daughter. She appears withdrawn and quieter than normal, and her daughter reports that she's been irritable, not sleeping and staying in bed more during the last more during the day for the last month or so but she just assumes that's how old people get um recently she's noticed she's had a hard time remembering if she's taken her meds and she seems to have trouble with word finding um her daughter thinks she's been more confused at times and she also recently stopped driving on her own because people are so crazy on the roads these days <laughs> quote um so a few questions i guess the first one would be can you talk us through how you would take a, a Jerry psych focused history and review of systems in a patient like this? Yeah. I mean, I think that, um, for, for older folks like this lady, there, there are a couple of things that, um, that I always sort of start with. And I, you know, one of the things that I talk about, I ask them is sort of like, you know, what is going on when, when you don't want to get out of bed, What's going on with that? Is is there any pain? Is there, um, you know, w- just sort of like running through some physical things? Because sometimes people get, older folks get more irritable because they're in pain and it's not being addressed. Or they're constipated and it's not being addressed. Um, 
But what I would start to ask her is to say things like, you know, have have you have you started to feel more down or more blue, more more sad recently? Um, are you spending most of your time feeling that way? Um, and also questions about like, uh, you know, have you dropped a lot of your activities or things that you really found interesting and fun? And those those are actually, I think, the first two questions of like the PHQ-9 or the Patient Health Questionnaire 9, which is, you know, uh, an actually really good uh, screening tool for a lot of people. It's great that the patients can do it themselves. It's been validated to hand it to people and they can check off little boxes. Um because what it sounds like is is everything that sort of is going on that you're hearing with this lady is sort of the classical sim- signs and symptoms of a geriatric depression. So you've got the you know you've got the lack of motivation to go out. You've got the lack uh, the the irritability, the you know the maybe new problems with memory, which are is probably not a dementia, but more likely you know just uh, you know a symptom of the depression. Um, and so all of those things make me think about, hey, this is, you know, this is what's going on. That being said, you know, she does have a bunch of medical problems. So you want to make sure that her, you know, that she's not, you know, unable to breathe, that she's not apneic at night. I can not, make her tired. <laughs> yeah. You know, th- those are things that she's not overtired, that she's not in pain, that she's not having an infection. All of these things can look like depression in an older person you know if her thyroid hasn't been checked recently check on that you know all, all sort of these little things that we sometimes forget about um are important to to remember in older folks because things like you know hypothyroidism can look a lot like depression or dementia um and you know i'm glad that the that this lady has a little bit of the irritability um irritability can you know it, you know, when people think about depression, they think about sad people who are tearful. But when older folks get depressed, they can also look very anxious and they can also look very irritable. Um, one of the one of the things that I always think about um, and I talk to my generalist colleagues or my my geriatric medicine colleagues is that if people start showing up to your office more often with sort of vague complaints you know, do the PHQ-9 because they're they're either depressed or anxious. I like and that so, way. you know, it's sort of like if, if they're here, if they're there for no reason and they just sort of show up one day and then two weeks later, they just sort of show up again, you know, chances are they're depressed. Depressed people, oddly enough, visit hospitals and doctors more, but take medicines less. Do you use any other screening tools aside from the PHQ-9? You know, that's that's the big one aside from, you know, for depression. There is something called the geriatric depression scale, which is like a 30 question scale that you have to actually talk people through. It's a bit of a pain in the butt. Um, But like these days, you know, aside from what I usually recommend to people, aside from like since I, you know, memorized it basically. (laughs) But, uh, you know, and that's sort of like in my interview i go through the symptoms of depression the phq9 does a great um a great delineation of all the symptoms with the most important question which is the last question which is are you gonna do you want to kill yourself are you feeling suicidal um to throw that one in there because we forget i mean i think the hard part is that we don't we don't remember that older folks do actually suicide um and you know we are having uh, an epidemic of suicides in this country these days. Um, and and older folks are part of that epidemic. 
And oddly enough, and this is a, this is a horrible thing, but most people who most elderly people who suicide have visited their primary care doctor within two to three weeks of the suicide. Yeah. Wow. So are there specific questions that we should ask, like in relation to that? Like, do you have a gun in the home or like how are how are elderly people committing suicide? So, you know, it's there are a couple of different things. And so in general, uh, the sort of the same rules apply that they do for younger people. Men generally commit suicide with more um, more lethal means like guns. Uh, Women tend to use overdoses and other means. So what I usually ask people and first of all, the other thing is like, remember, it's okay to ask people if they are thinking about hurting themselves. And some older folks will say, you know, you know, I just feel like it's not worth going on anymore. And I'm and, you know, and you in you may hear old folks say that or elderly people say that often. Um, And that's not always worrisome. You know, I I want you know, I want you to take, you know, people saying like, I want to hurt myself or I'm thinking of dying seriously. On the other hand, there are people who also say things like, you know, I, uh, you know, I've lived a really good life. And I've, um, you know, and, and, and that's okay. The next question that you can ask is um, something along the lines of, well, have you ever thought about doing anything to end your life? Um, and if the, an- you know, if the answer is no, and then you can say like, well, why not? And they, they'll, a lot of times will say, well, I, 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 I'm afraid to, or I couldn't do that to my family. And, and some people say, well, yeah, sometimes I do think about it. And that's where you can ask the next question, which is like, well, what would you think of doing? And, you know, and then and if they say something along the lines of, well, I have, you know, I have my old pistol from World War Two. That's when you start to think, OK, well, how how close have you gotten to to doing something with that? Have you like, is it in working order? Do you have ammunition? Have, like, have, have you ever like gotten it out of the drawer and held it into in your hand thinking about hurting yourself? And and the more serious this thing is, the more worried you should be. I'm always curious about the next steps. I mean, if you have this little old 89-year-old lady and and she is answering honestly, do you do you hospitalize her? Well, you know, I what one of the things that I say is like, well, it sounds that you you might be pretty depressed if you are thinking about hurting yourself. And and so, you know, and and this is definitely like this is really scary. And this is like for, you know, this is not like you know, this is not internal medicine 101. This is like very stuff. And, it, and it's okay to get a second opinion and to say, listen, you know, I'd like you to talk to someone else. I'd like you to be seen, you know, because just because you go to a hospital and you say you want to hurt yourself doesn't mean that you're actually going to get admitted because you'll be screened by experts who will decide whether or not. But in general, I, I do actually ask people, it, although it's rare in New York City, um, in other places in the country, I, you know, having firearms in the home is common. Um, so I always ask, like, do you have firearms? Um, and if someone says yes, and they're also thinking about hurting themselves, I, you know, I, I, I also ask, well, do you think that it would be okay if you gave your gun to a, a close friend or a relative to hold on to for you? You know? People don't like you don't want to you don't want to be like, I'm going to come take your gun away. But, you know, 
because you know is that that firearms are important to people and they're, they're very attached to them especially if it's a veteran or a, a police officer or someone who's who's grown up around guns and things that they can't imagine living without them but they might be able to imagine you know either giving them or the ammunition to a trusted friend to hold on to till they can get through this difficult time um because in general if i usually think that if if they're having this conversation with you that's actually a really big step Mm -hmm. in that they're being honest and they're asking for help so i i want to move i want to move on to talking about medications and things but it so it sounds like kind of it's it's a a definitely a gray area if patients are telling us they want to kill themselves we should be worried we should be asking for help if we don't have a lot of experience with this and potentially sending them to the er with like uh some either maybe a family member takes them to the er and they get evaluated by a psychiatrist or something like that might be a a reasonable recourse here definitely okay definitely that better i always say better safe than sorry well so let's say with this, uh, with our patient that we were talking about here, um, she, you know, she's asking like, what can you do? Her daughter's very worried. We talked about like, we were going to check it, uh, her TSH. We sort of evaluated her other medical conditions. We don't think too much is going on. So we think this is probably depression here that we're dealing with. How do you start to decide like, Am I going to do psychotherapy for like put this person in therapy or am I going to start them on a medication? What would be your thought process there? Well, you know, I usually present the options to the person um, in general because, you know, some people are some people are are fine with taking pills. Some people are like, I can't handle another medication. Um, In general, the most of the medications that we have, although there are some drug-drug interactions that are important, um, in general, most of them are actually pretty benign. There aren't a lot of side effects to the newer generation, like SSRIs and things like that. And they're pretty well tolerated without much of the, without much um, drug-drug interactions. Um, so I'd say, like, you know, there are a couple of different ways that we can, we can handle this. I think you're depressed. I think you need help. Um, and, you know, if, you know, you can, if you feel like you want to talk to someone about the problems and there's all sorts of different therapy, usually I, I also remind people that like not all therapy is lying on a couch doing word association and talking about how their mother messed up their lives. Um, that there's some therapy that is much more like skills training, like CBT or, you know, behavioral activation or things like that. Um, if they're like, no, nah, I'm not going to do that, then you can say, okay, well, there's some medications that you can take. And, you know, depending on what their illness is and, and what some of their symptoms are, that sort of guides the medications. So in general, I tend to start with an SSRI. Um there's really not a lot of data about what SSRI is better than the other. Um, there are certain SSRIs that have less drug-drug interactions and less cytopho- cytochrome P450 interactions, for those of you who are studying for your boards. Because um, <laughs> like, you learn that like five minutes before your boards. and that, If you're like oh, me, yeah. you learn that five minutes before your boards, and then you evacuate it from your head. Um but yeah, so in you know, in general that's the case. But for instance, if you have a frail older person who is having trouble sleeping and not eating, then you might think about using something like mirtazapine, which has beneficial side effects of being sedating and stimulating appetite. Um 
Or on the other hand, if they are really sort of lagging, um, then you may think about an antidepressant like bupropion, which is a little bit more um, uh, uh, yeah, stimulating. Right. Um, right. But in general, I usually end up, you know, with the with the SSRIs leaning more towards the ones with less uh, drug interactions, things like escitalopram or sertraline, as opposed to like citalopram or uh, fluoxetine. I personally find it really helpful just to hear that your own sort of clinical pearls about trying, you know, this agent if someone is has more. Um, sedative symptoms versus someone who's more hyperactive and anxious? Or are there any other go-to medications for sort of your typical patient with a certain type of symptoms, if that makes sense? Basically, if if you've got someone who's not really eating and they're not sleeping well, the mirtazapine is really a winner. Um, the bupropion is stimulating. The, the, the downsides with that is that it can actually curb people's ap- appetites because it is stimulating. Also, um, if the person has a lot of anxiety along with the depression, which is common in older folks, um, that may not be the best medication because it can actually still make people more anxious. And of course, if they're if they're a drinker, um, you may want to avoid the bupropion can, since it can actually like lower the seizure threshold. But in general, like you know, for I would probably say about like seventy five percent of the. Dep- like mild to moderately depressed people out there will tolerate a good SSRI. Um, and, you know, I think that we, we talk a lot about the, like the old geriatric adage of start low and go slow with the ideas that you might want to use a lower dose and, and then titrate it slowly. And, and that's fine. Um, it's really sort of patient dependent. But at the end of the day, um, if the patient is not having side effects and that you're not seeing a good effect of the medication, you really do need to push the dose. And I think that one of the things that is bothersome is uh, I'll get referrals from general medical doctors who have someone on a very low dose of an SSRI and they're like, well, it's a treatment failure. And, and you're like, no, it's not. You just have never bothered to actually increase the dose for whatever reason. And I, I know some people are not comfortable doing that. And some people are worried that you can't go over, like you can't raise the dose to a typical adult dose, but, you know, keeping in mind that, you know, the side effects for older folks may be a little bit different than adults. Um, you know, you can do that if you're careful. Yeah, Dennis, I, w- I was just going to jump in from a primary care perspective. When I was regularly starting these medications, let's just take sertraline, for example. Mm-hmm. If the person was really old and frail, I might start at 12.5. And then every week or two, I would go up to like 25 and then 50 mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and then usually 100 or so. I-, I wouldn't go much higher than that without probably getting a psychiatrist involved. And uh-huh. so... I think I think it's helpful to hear maybe how often like what's a reasonable course to titrate like how often should should you titrate and how do you counsel the patients like you're you're going you you don't tell them you're going to feel better tomorrow right it takes uh-huh, weeks right. weeks to months before we get to the max effect so can you, how do you kind of counsel patients through that what would it sound like so what i usually tell people is i you know i say we're going to be starting this medication um and then i present them with the side effects um but I try not to scare them. Um, 
And then I say, you know, part part of part of the difficulty with with medications and with side effects in people who are older is that, um, like the drug companies just don't do don't run side effect studies in old people. They don't. They run them in college students. So we don't really know. <laughs> What's going to happen? Um, and that can be hard for people to have to say. I mean, luckily, I'm a psychiatrist. Since we don't know really what causes any of our diseases or what our, any of our medicines do, aside from like what the label says they do, like I'm used to being like, I have no idea. But a lot of people don't. <laughs> um, and so, so you can say like, listen, this may not work. This may not work quickly. Um, this medicine will not come to its uh, to its full potential until four to six weeks after you start taking it. And, you know, we want to make sure that you don't have bad side effects. So we're going to start this medication slowly, which might mean that instead of the four to six weeks, you may not reach its full potential of the medication until eight to 12. But you will start to feel a little bit better every week you know there's there's some studies i remember reading one study that you can like even after you know 48 to to 72 hours on an antidepressant there are sort of like tiny but somewhat significant changes in attitude that can be tested um people don't notice it's almost like unconscious but it, it can happen um and the other great thing is that uh, what's well, good and bad is that um a lot of the what we call the neurovegetative symptoms of depression, the poor sleep, the poor appetite, the lack of energy, those will actually get better first. So people may still be having like, you know, ruminative thoughts and being and being in a sad mood and not enjoying things, but they may have a little bit more energy and their appetite will come back, which you can actually point to and say, hey, this is what's going on. The other thing that I always recommend uh, to do is that, you know, you can give people serial PHQ-9s and, and that way you can track their progress. And so that's actually really handy for a couple of things. You can when when people come to you and say, listen, I'm not really sure if I'm feeling any better, you can point to the scores and say, well, you know, it, it may be difficult for you to see that you're feeling better. But, you know, what you're 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 gauging these scores uh, and, and they are improving. Plus, it's also really helpful for you as a clinician, because when the person hits a plateau, that may be a sign for you to, like, increase the dose. Mm. And so if you think about... um. Like things like the uh, the impact collaborative care model of depression treatment that was out of the University of Washington. You know, one of the things that they did was you know do these serial PHQ nines with a very stepwise depression care, so that like if you know if if the PHQ nine scores did not fall as you expected them to, then you would increase the dose. Uh, it's sort of nicely algorithmic. Um, which is really helpful and you get a lot of much better results than trying to track it on your own. Are you ever augmenting therapy? Like let's say you get to uh, the max dose of an antidepressant, like an SSRI. Are you, how, how do you handle that? Do you add something or do you cross titrate to a new agent altogether? Yeah. So it really kind of depends. Um, and so th there are a couple of things that you can do. So if, um, if you if they've maximized on 
the if say they've maximized the dose on an SSRI and you've seen some good response but it's not good enough, then I would say you you know again there's a little bit of data about this. There's not a ton of data, but there are things that you can do. What I tend to do is to take a look at what they're on and think about a drug that is another antidepressant, but in a different sort of mechanism. So if they're on an SSRI, you may want to, to you know, add something that works on dop- the dopamine system like um, like uh, uh, bupropion. Um, if they're on an SNRI, um, like something like venlafaxine or desvenlafaxine, then, you know, again, you can consider something like the, like mirtazapine, which sort of works on serotonin itself or, or the, the bupropion, which is d- dopamine again. And then there are, there are other sort of strategies to augment that, um, that you can try. I usually say that, you know, that might be better off with someone with a little bit more ex- experience, but you can augment with atypical antipsychotics. Yeah. Aripiprazole is FDA approved to augment for depression. Uh, Lamotrigine, which is um, a mood stabilizer slash anti-convulsant, uh, I think has an FDA approval to for you know, uh, augmenting depression. You can augment with lithium, um, and even with, uh, like, like thyroid hormone. So, uh, or, I'm, or even I'm going to go ahead and encourage the audience to refer to Dennis and his <laughs> colleagues be, before, I, I mean, like, yeah, the atypical, it's a, yeah. Like, these are the, they, like, we have, we have a lot of, we have a lot of tips and tricks in our armamentarium, but I would say a lot of them are things that you probably as like, as a general hospitalist would or, or like a generalist probably don't want to get involved with yeah and a lot and, of our, our a lot of our audience are primary care providers yeah, and yeah. and you know so and so all of these things you know all of these things have a lot of things to follow up on and you know especially with older folks like there's there's already stuff that you probably should be following up on that you might not be following up on when you start someone on an SSRI um so so adding something like uh, an atypical antipsychotic which a lot of people do for sleep i know a ton of people get quetiapine or or um olanzapine for sleep but you know, if you're going to be doing that, you really kind of want to check EKGs to look at the patient's QTC. You want to check triglyceride levels and hemoglobin A1C levels and all all of this stuff that, you know, as a as a primary care doc, you you probably may be checking anyway. But do you do you really want to spend time thinking about that? Yeah. Like for like for me, that's old hat. So it's like. You know, I'll be like, okay, so you're going to get this and then I have to do all this stuff in three months and then a whole bunch of stuff in six months. And But, you know, you guys have enough to worry about with, like, who gets a colonoscopy and <laughs> all those things that, like, I never remember. I want to ask one more question on this topic and then kind of move into some of the other things because um, we are going to do a show later in the year all about all the pharmacology, like, really in ah. depth. So... I wanted to ask, when you put someone on an antidepressant, they say, Doc, am I going to be on this for the rest of my life? Like, can we ever stop it? Right. So what I tell them is, it, it sort of depends on their history. So if this is the first time that they 
they have a depression, what I tell them is that I want you to commit to being on this medication for about six months to a year after you have recovered. So not after I start the medication, but once you are feeling better, you really need to be on this medication for six months to a year. Um, At that time, if you want to try to go off the medication, we can talk about tapering off that medication. But there will be a 30% chance that you will get depressed again. Um, If you do get depressed again, you know, you should get back on the medication. At that point, I would suggest staying on it for at least two years after you recover. And if you want to come off of it, you can come off of it. But at that point, there's a 50 to 60% chance that you will have a third episode. And if you have a third episode, it's almost 100% that you'll have a fourth. So you might as well stay on it after. <laughs> Very uplifting. Uh, so, you know, it's sort of like, and I get it. Like, number one, like, like the number of pills people take in when they're older is crazy and the fact that like if you go to the hospital god forbid you go to the hospital you end up on like eight different pills and if you are like a lot of my patients who come in and they're depressed and i want to put them on an ssri but i find out they're also on an aspirin that means we have to add a proton pump inhibitor to protect their stomach um so you you know you have to add a second pill to that pill um and so yeah so it definitely becomes a lot um, but yeah, so the, the more, and if, if someone comes to you and they're like, I've had depression my entire life and I've had like five hospitalizations and I want to be on a medicine and then not, and stop taking it, you should be like, no, <laughs> no, 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 no. Well, yeah, this has been so much fun. Can you give us a couple take home points that you really want the audience to remember? Yeah. I think the first thing is that, um, you're you're not going to diagnose depression in your elderly population unless you ask about it. And since you guys are all really primary care doctors are incredibly busy, the best way to ask about it is to hand the patient a PHQ-2 in the waiting room and have the 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 person who does the patient's blood pressure take a look at it. Um unless you're doing your own blood pressures, but whatever. But usually someone, there's a nurse somewhere or an attendant somewhere who's doing the blood pressure and checking the vital signs. They can take a look at that PHQ-2. If there's a yes, then that person can hand them the PHQ-9 to do. And then that the patient can hand it to you as you, as they walk in the door, as you walk in the door. So you can review that. It makes checking for depression and screening for depression really easy and something that you can do, you know, on every visit or at least quarterly for all your old people. So that's the first thing. Uh, the second thing I'd say is don't be afraid to like actually initiate treatment um, for depression. Um, and when you do, try to try to follow it up in a very systematic and stepwise manner. Um, I, again, recommend using the PHQ-9 to do that because um, it just makes a, an easy sort of way to, to check in on the symptoms. Um, and then, you know, remember that... Uh, you know, older folks may have different side effects, um, so you can watch out from the side effects, but it doesn't mean that you should not push doses, dosages of medications, um, uh, especially if people aren't responding to lower dosages. So that's that. those would be the take-homes. And then finally, like, you know, if, if, uh, if the person is, you know, thinking about hurting themselves and they have somewhat of a plan, like, don't hesitate to get help. 
um, and to and to refer out uh, just because you send someone to a hospital or to a psychiatrist or an urgent psychiatry center to for an evaluation does not mean that they're going to be locked away. It just means that an expert is going to evaluate them and then come up with a better risk assessment than you can probably do. Yes, that is absolutely true, at least in my case. I want to thank you so much for all your time tonight, and uh, I hope you had fun. and And I think you know, future episodes may be in order here to because there's a lot that we didn't get to that we wanted to talk to uh, in, that we had kind of had planned for tonight. Sure, I had a, I had a great time. I would be very happy to come back. And did you have a plug? I think you told me there was a. So I've, I've, I have a personal plug, which is, um, you know, one of the things that I was uh, talking about earlier is I, I do a lot of medical student education and. Uh, I work with a group of other geriatric psychiatrists and medical student educators, and we have come up with a series of learning objectives. So if you are out there trying to teach medical students about geriatric mental health, um, you can take a look at our learning objectives. You can just PubMed, my last name, Popio, P-O-P-E-O, and D-M, and and you will find it somewhere, uh, as well as an annotated bibliography of some teaching aids that you might uh, want to look up. So... uh, so yeah, please go ahead. Yeah, I will try to find those and put them in the show notes. And if I can't, then I'll I'll shoot you an email so we can get them. Shoot me an email and I can get you the uh, the addresses. Okay, very um, cool. Well, have a great night. So much. Thank you so much. It was great. This has been another episode of the Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. You can get show notes at thecurbsiders.com forward slash podcast and sign up for our mailing list at thecurbsiders.com forward slash knowledge food. We like your feedback, so please send it to thecurbsiders at gmail.com or just reach out on Facebook, Instagram, and on Twitter at thecurbsiders. Until next time, I've been Dr. Matthew Frank Watto. And Jordy, you said you were going to give your middle name on your sign I'm not going to give my middle name, <laughs> so I'm just going to go with it. I'm Jordana Kazowski. Okay. Thank you for joining us tonight, Jordy. Uh, Thank you for uh, helping to write and produce this episode. And thank you to the wonderful Dr. Kate Grant for her lovely artwork that she made for this show. And thank you to our social media team. Hannah R. Abrams runs our Twitter. Beth Garbs Garbatelli runs our Instagram. And Chris, the Chew Man Chew, is on Facebook. Thank you and good night. Good night.